Welcome to Ride Ever Stride, episode 78. Welcome to Ride Every Stride with Van Hargis, a podcast about horsemanship and more. Our goal is to educate, motivate, inspire, and entertain you through an exploration of everything horsemanship and the intersection of horsemanship and humanship. My name is Laura McClellan, and I'm your co-host on Ride Every Stride, and I'm happy to be back with Master Horseman Van Hargis. Good morning, Van. Good morning, Laura McClellan. How are you? I am doing well. How are things in South Texas? You know, here we are in fall now, or really getting close to it, and it's still hotter than hell. (laughs) (laughs) But it's Texas. (laughs) Yep, that's Texas for you. You know, it's crazy because, you know, people say, what's the seasons like down there? Well, we've got hot, hotter, and hottest, and hottest is in August, and after that, we're just celebrating the other parts of the seasons, which are (laughs) a little less hot. But um, I guess after a while, you just get used to it, right? We We just keep carrying on. You just get used to sweating and you get used to drinking lots and lots of water. And, and 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 the other side of it is it just makes it whenever we get an opportunity to go places that has a little bit different type of environment, we just soak it in, man. You know, we, if we go to Canada or Colorado or any place else that's cooler in the summer or has a little bit more of a pleasant fall, it just makes us appreciate that even more. So, you know, in, in the end, I guess it's just all good, Laura. Yeah. All good. It's all good. That's right. And the nice thing is you have relatively nice warm weather most of the year for when you're out there working with horses and their owners. Yep. And you know, the cool thing is too, people ask me this, uh, well, what, you know, we really have to put our, for example, we have a student down right now from North Dakota and she was telling us that literally the ground is frozen for so much of the year. And then there's snow on the ground that their riding season is like incredibly short. Now that's the cool, weird or cool and weird part about the Dakotas, both North and South Dakota. You know, sometimes we think we have, you know, hot weather down here in Texas, but we, we've got hot weather. And our other seasons or other parts of the season, especially way down here in South Texas, the other parts of the season are incredibly mild. There's not a lot of swing between the maximum and, and the, you know, the maximum heat and the maximum cold. Up there, they literally go from way up into the hundreds sometimes in the summer, way down to the minus, way below zero things in the winter. And I'm thinking, man, how different would that be compared to our world? They've got that huge temperature swing, you know, from their, their seasons. So I guess in that regard, we have to look at it pretty positive and think, well, we've got it pretty good. In regard to the horse stuff, it's even better in my opinion, because we've got grass almost year round. You don't have to really feed extra stuff unless you just want to, you know, a little bit, you know, those, yeah, we still need hay, but our big deal is we need hay, not because the winter kills it. We need hay because oftentimes our summer might be so dry that we'll be feeding hay in the summer mm-hmm. because the grass isn't quite growing up for the lack of moisture. But it's just kind of weird, isn't it? The other side of it, from the productive side, we can ride about 350 to 355 days a year here without any kind of weather delay whatsoever. And even then, our weather delays are really by choice more so than by have to. You know, we don't have to, we're not, we're not snowed in, we're not iced in. It's like, well, weather's kind of bad today. Today's a good day to take off. Yeah. So really about 355 to 360 days, maybe 350, 355 days a year, you can be productive riding your horses. And that is if you have any sort of heat tolerance at all. So I guess like it's, it's always, it's all balances out regardless of where we are, isn't it? Or yeah. doesn't it? Yeah. And I guess, you know, the fact that you've got 
such a long riding season, I mean, pretty, almost pretty much year round that, that kind of makes it good for like, you've got your apprenticeship programs and stuff going on down there. Right. Yep. Yep. It really works out for good productive time. And, and oftentimes like our students from the North, they obviously want to come down here in their winter when there's not a whole lot they can do and they can extend their riding season by coming and spending that time with us. But even then, even if they were here in the dead of winter, they still have to contend with the humidity difference, mm-hmm. but it doesn't take them long before they acclimate. And most of our students, not all, but most of our students are fairly young. I think our students that we have in here now, one is, I think, in their early 30s and the other one is in their early 20s. And they're, so obviously they're very young. They can they can adapt very quickly and they do. And it's just amazing. These girls are just kicking butt. Boy, they're doing great in the program. So it's good that we get to kind of extend their riding season at the same time. They can come down and enjoy what we've got going on here and learn something too. Hmm. Here's what we're going to talk about today. Sometimes at our clinics, we get on this. And then sometimes at the expos, I speak very specifically on this. But um, what we're going to talk about today is herd and herd dynamics. Mm. And we're going to visit a little bit about the social aspect of it and some other things as well about what did, what, why do we need to know about herd dynamics? What do we need to know? about the herd and and the herd dynamics and the social aspect of that. And what the heck does that have to do with us just going on a leisurely trail ride? So we're going to visit a little bit today about the herd dynamics and the importance of being as much about our horses and their instincts and their situations within their herd. Uh, We need to know as much about that as possible to help us get along with them a lot better. So that's going to be our topic for the day. Well, that sounds sounds interesting. I mean, it, when you first mentioned it, I thought, well, what does that have to do with me as a writer? I'm not part of the herd, but I kind of am, aren't I? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in fact, you are the primary part of the herd. If we really want to be specific and I really want to help people out the most, I always ask them, who's the leader? And they really have to understand that. Now, before we get to the actual herd part, I, I want to address that question when I say, who's the leader? I know that the romanticized aspect of loving your horses and and having that good relationship with your horses is that we're going to be equals. And I want to tell people right off the bat, it doesn't work that way, period. I, I wished it did. It sounds good. It sounds romantic. And it sounds like one of those ideal situations that me and my horse are going to be in equal ground and we're going to get along together. They're going to love me and I'm going to love them. The reality is it that does that flat out just doesn't work in the world of horse-human relationship, because it doesn't even work in the relationship within the herd itself. So you're asking the horse by, by requiring that of them, of being equal, or even desiring that of them to be your equal. What you're basically saying is go totally against your instincts, and I'm going to do something that's really crazy. I'm going to get you to go against your instincts and look at me as an equal partner of yours. Because it, and I'm not saying it couldn't happen, but wow, you're going to go up a real steep hill to try to reach that, that goal. I just, I just don't think it could happen. Hmm. Um, and again, it's something that we strive for as a certain amount of equality, but the reality is the actual equal part of horse and human thing, I don't think it'll ever work. But when I say it's something we could strive for that couldn't work, then why would we strive for it? Something that I've said hundreds of times, almost every clinic, every expo, and I'll say it on our podcast numerous times, And that's that we are constantly in what I call a transformation of refining our communication. Um, So we're refining 
the situation with our horses to the point where sometimes it looks like we're equal. If you'll remember, you, you made a comment one time when I was working one of your horses on the ground doing some groundwork. And you made a comment. It's like, oh my goodness, after just a few minutes, it almost looked like you two were dancing together. And that's about as close to equal as you can get. But I'm going to go back and refer to another analogy using the dance thing as an example. Even when we're dancing, when you think about, oh, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers, think about the fact that they still had to have a leader. In other words, even though there was a leader or there were, they, were, they looked like equal dance partners, there was still someone leading the other. And that's, a, that's the reality of it. Now, granted, they were so refined in their communication, it looked as if they were moving completely together. But yet, I bet you, all to a donut, that Fred Astaire very easily, very subtly led Ginger Rogers around on the dance floor or on the stage. So that, that to me is an absolute refinement of our communication, refinement of our movement. That's what we strive for, but it doesn't start out like that. It's going to start out incredibly basic. And how basic? I want people to remove yourself from that relationship totally and look at the horse first. And that's what we're going to talk about today about the herd dynamic. Thinking of horses, I want people to think, because a lot of us don't get an opportunity to go to the wild or go to like really, really big ranches and their horses are just turned out on vast amount of acreages and just acting and being horses, oftentimes we only see horses in a confined, more domestic environment, and we assume that's their behavior and that's what they're like. That's not necessarily how horses' brains think. That's just how we've restricted their, those horses to fit in our environments. But if you really want to know horses and you really want to know the most about them that you can, for the advantage of helping you learn to communicate with them better, then you need to see and witness them in their environment. But let's face it, sometimes that's very difficult to do. What I'd recommend to people, go watch documentaries, go watch different things on TV, if you can, about the horse thing. But it doesn't always have to be just about the horses. The reality is horses fit into a category of being four-legged animals of prey, meaning that they are being preyed upon most prey animals four-legged prey animal grazers, most of those live in herds. And why do they do that? Because there's safety in numbers. Now, sometimes we want to look at, again, from the humanistic romanticized part and think, oh, looky there, they're all living in numbers. And, uh, and there's that big herd. They must all really love each other. Baloney. <laughs> the reality is they're living in that herd, not because they love one another and they get along so well, is that they literally need each other. It's a very selfish, almost a selfish situation that they're in that herd in the first place. And let's just make it real easy to understand. Let's say there's only a hundred of them. If there was only one of them, a predator is going to choose to eat just that one. So there's a 100% chance that you're going to be the meal of that predator if there's only one of you. If there's two of you, you've got a 50-50 chance of living. If there's a 100 of you, you've got a 1% chance of getting eaten and a 99% chance of surviving. You see, so the reality is the numbers, it's not just safety and the fact that you're all locally together right there, but you've also made yourself a little bit less invisible to the others. The other aspect of the herd is that if you're going to be in that herd and you're going to be part of the numbers, you don't want to be the weak one. You don't want to be the slow one. You don't want to be the old one because that's the one that the predators will seek out. 
So even if they are sick, weak, or distraught in some way, that horse is going to, or that prey animal is going to act like they're, they're strong. So it's, as long as we see that and we recognize that herd dynamic, and from that perspective, we get a little bit better idea of how horses' brains really think. Sometimes we don't get disillusioned by thinking, oh, my horse loves me because I'm his herd leader. They don't really love you for that reason. And when you communicate to them that you've earned the right to be their leader, they really don't give a flying flip about being around you. Except for the fact that maybe if they are around you, then they've increased their odds of surviving by two. Well, I was going to say, it's not that they consciously think, oh, I need a bunch of other horses around me um, so that the predators will eat that those horses instead of me. That's just the instinctual way they've developed to feel more secure, to, to be more secure and more safe in a group. It's, Bingo. That's it's, exactly right. It's not like, you know, the, the old story of if you and I are out, you know, in the wilderness and a bear comes along, I don't have to be able to outrun the bear. I just need to outrun you. Exactly. <laughs> they don't think yeah. that way. It's not a conscious thing on them. It's just how they've developed over the eons of time that horses have been around, that they instinctually feel more secure in a group. Absolutely. That's a, you couldn't have nailed it any better. And that's and that there is the reality of it. So the question is, is that, well, how do we how do we know that for sure? And that's why I encourage people go watch documentaries. The one thing I like to get people to watch and you can find all sorts of stuff like this on YouTube. You can find all sorts of stuff like this on uh, Amazon Prime or whatever the case may be. But watch documentaries on the prey animals that are oh, like in Africa, for example. Because there's lots of documentaries on that. And, and, the, and I even encourage people to go watch documentaries on zebras because zebras look a lot like horses. And we can almost, in our minds, make, us, make ourselves think that, oh, look, that's a zebra and that's how they act. And, and they look kind of like a horse. And quite frankly, they are in the equine family. So as a result, we can kind of relate a little bit more, maybe how a horse might act in that same situation. Now, there's, there's something I want them to be or want our listeners to be keenly aware of, whenever we see those numbers, those zebras don't live their life in fear of predators. They're just constantly aware of them. And that's another thing we have to realize is that they don't make those decisions, like you said, consciously. They're not thinking, oh, I'm always going to be looking out and, and be keenly aware of that. It's just within them to be aware. Um, it's, it's within them to be close to that herd. It's just within them. It's not a conscious thing that they're making. It's just that that's just the instinctual aspect of it. Now, why are the instincts so important to us? Is because we have to realize that almost everything that we do with our horses really goes against their instincts. We call that training. Hmm. Even when we take them out of that herd environment, we put them in a pen somewhere. We're training that horse to learn to survive as a soloist in a controlled environment. So that's totally against their instincts. So that by itself is training. Because what training is, training is the ability to perform specific tasks that are against natural behavior, your natural desires, your, your natural instincts. You see, training is recreating different habits, recreating different Th uh, thoughts, overcoming, you will, or if you will, overcoming your instincts. So you see, to me, the greatest thing that we could do for horses is to study horses. Mm. 
Mm. Not how to train them, but to study them for what they are. If you study them for what they are and how they really behave and how they really behave even within the herd, because all we've talked about so far is just the herd. But the other cool part is there's all these other dynamics going on within the herd. That is also incredibly important information to us because if we understand not just the herd and the reason they're in the herd and that sort of thing, but we also understand that there's things and relationships and whatnot taking place within the herd. Now envision putting yourself in that herd. Hmm. Question is, where's your place? Where do you fit within that herd? If you literally, if you were still outside the herd, but just visualizing yourself in it, question is where where are you what do you mean by where because you know you've talked about herd dynamics what is the behavior right. within the herd that we're talking about that's relevant to us understanding where our place is in it cuz i've heard right. about the well, the hierarchy and the you know yeah yeah well what obviously what i'm not referring to is geographically you know, okay you're in the middle of the herd you're on the outside of the herd you're fourth horse from the left of the herd. Not obviously not the the geographic aspect of it, but in the herd dynamic aspect of it, where are you? And and that's what I want people to realize. Are you just going to be in the herd and just be a a member of the herd? You're just going to be in there just kind of hanging out? Or are you going to be in the herd as an animal that's kind of working your way toward the leadership role? And the reality is there's always and, and there's always a follower. And actually, there's several different followers, all the way down from the herd leader to the one that's really getting picked on and, and the absolute least desirable animal within that herd. That's the one that's going to be the bait for all the lions and all the other predators out there. But So where are you? Well, you don't want to be the last guy because the last guy is going to be the one that's going to be most likely to be eaten and consumed by predators. So my question is, where are you? And the other question is, then is not do you want to be, where do you have to be? If you're going to be working with a horse as its trainer and as its responsible human, there's only one place for you, period, and that is at the leadership role. Hmm. Now, question is, how can you be the leader of an organization of which you know nothing about? Hmm. Yeah. That's why I want people to study horses for what they are, not the BS crap that you read in books and all the other stuff. And Fury, for example, was a great book, and Black Beauty was a great book, but all those were romantic stories about a little girl falling in love with horses, but it didn't really teach us a whole heck of a lot about horses except for how horses viewed humans as being mean, evil, two-legged creatures. But the reality is, forget about all the romantic aspect of it. Study horses for what they are, and study them even more so in the most natural environment that you can. Some people don't realize why, but I wrote a curriculum for an organization that uses horses as animals of therapy to help overcome abuse, more specifically sex trafficking and sexual abuse. I wrote a whole curriculum for that organization on how to use horses in that area. The very first thing in that curriculum was that we go out in whatever environment that we could. If we were on a big ranch, we went to their horse pasture. If we were in a small area with only say three or four horses in a, in a little bitty small herd in a fairly small pen, we literally sat there and nobody was allowed to say a word, and, but you couldn't take your eyes off the horse. You had to study and observe the horse. Later, we communicated what we observed. And that's what I want people to think of and do is that quit trying to be 
the trainer all the time. Sometimes just simply be the student. Watch and observe the horse for what it is. And when I say that, do it very objectively, meaning that don't put stuff in it. Oh, looky there, that mare must really love its baby. Or And, and I'm not saying that mares don't love their babies. I'm just thinking, do they love them the way that you're thinking? Because see, again, they're just raising another number in the herd, which is going to increase the thing. They're also raising, hopefully, another animal that's going to have good, strong genetics that can run longer, be stronger, and and survive even more. Because another part of their instinct is survival, not just for my life and today, but beyond. In other words, what are we doing to raise survivors for the future? So their love is not necessarily just for ours. In fact, most of the time, human love, by comparison, is incredibly selfish Hmm. because it's usually all about us and not necessarily the survival of the race. So, but then horses, it's all about them surviving as a species, you see. So we're really getting into some really cool, weird stuff there. But, but nonetheless, let's look at it through an unbelievably objective observation. And then let's start breaking that down. And when I start, start breaking it down, start looking at who's being moved around by whom. Watch how the horses are communicating with each other. Watch sometimes how things are done so incredibly subtle, and then watch how things oftentimes seem to escalate very quickly. Watch the little subtleties of how the herd itself moves, and watch how one horse might move another within that, those, those things, those, that same situation. And again, I'm going to ask, where do you see yourself in that? Can you emulate the behavior that you're witnessing? Because you see, the reality is that horse is never going to talk human. That horse is never going to communicate the way that we communicate. Yeah. So the burden, if we really want to get along with our horses, is we have to learn to communicate in a way that they can understand. Now, whether you like the term or you don't like the term, and I think you know where I sit on that, is I'm always torn when I think about, quote unquote, natural horsemanship. I'm always torn about whether or not I'm really on that bandwagon or not, but I truly do understand that the best way to communicate with horses is by trying to communicate in languages that they already understand. But how do we do that if we don't observe them for what they are? That's what I was thinking as you were talking. You know, I was thinking back to, you know, your four questions. And I think it's number three is, can you communicate what you want in a way that the horse can understand? And you can't do that if you don't understand how they communicate. That's where I see a huge amount of value in what you're uh, proposing here for you know, people that want to be good horsemen, good horsewomen, to spend a lot of time just observing the herd and how they communicate with each other. Right. Hmm. Well, that's, that's spot on. That's exactly right. And then when you do that, then we also have to, let's say again, if we're eventually going to put ourselves in a situation, okay, now I'm going to interact with a horse or with a, a herd of horses. In other words, I am going to interact with three of them. How am I going to interact? Well, there's only one option for you. I'm sorry, but that one option is that you have to be the leader. The minute you walk into that situation, you have to be the leader. And so if you are in your herd, whatever size that is, and you determine that you're going to be the leader, then you quickly have to determine also where are the other horses in that group? Where is the existing leader and where is she going to be or he going to be? If I'm going to step in there and take the leadership role, how is that going to affect the total dynamics of that herd? Is it simply going to be that I, I just replaced that one? Or if I go in there and I prove to that horse that I'm going to be the leader, did that totally tear her confidence down to the point to where, oh, she's just going to be at the end of the herd now, the, 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 the bottom of the pack, so to speak? 
So we have to think about whenever we are, whenever we're transferring into that leadership role, how's that going to affect the others? Now, man, working with multiple horses is very difficult, but working, let's just say most of us are just going to work with one horse and one horse at a time. Then we have to, we have to accept that leadership role. We can be gentle, we can be harsh, whatever, but nonetheless, whatever your method and, and or technique, you have to earn that leadership role. So you have, that's why it's also important. If you're going to be watching the herd dynamic and as, as a whole, now change your focus on watching the herd leader and watch what that horse does and start practicing things that that horse is doing. And when you start practicing what that horse is doing, now you're going to be able to hopefully emulate and mimic, if you will, a behavior that the other horse that you're going to be working with might more readily recognize. And you've got obstacles, though. The obstacles, you don't look anything like a horse. <laughs> you don't smell anything like a horse. You look like a predator. You act like a predator. How do I know you're not really a predator and you're in here trying to fake it and prove to me that you're really a horse? Now, the good thing is horses don't really judge that much, but they do look at our their, fur, their very first instinct of us humans is that that's a predator. Why is that predator coming into my space? Is this something I need to flee and get away from, or is this something I need to fight? And so we have to look at that situation as well. How does the horse view me? I know now from my hours of observation, how I view the horse. I know now from my hours of observation, how I view the leader of that herd, but how does the horse view me? And then how can I over time emulate consistently, oh, there's a really tough word, but emulate consistently the behavior that this horse might eventually accept at me being its leader and not just some attacking predator. So you see, it's, it's really crazy, isn't it? I mean, there's a lot of stuff that we have to think about that, that really makes us, and if we do think about those things and not think about it and just stressing over them, but I mean, think about it in a positive, more constructive way. But the more we view those things and the more we think about those things, the more we put those things into actions, then the more likely it is that our that we'll have a better understanding of our horses and how to communicate with them. But um, either way, it just really takes a lot of work and, and consistency on our part to, to study the horse for what it is. Well, so I get the idea of being the leader and you've talked in a, I think it was a relatively recent episode, We talk, you talked about the difference between being a leader and a boss, because when you're saying you, you need to be the leader, you're not saying come in there, you know, with guns blazing and, and boss everybody around. But, but I, and I'm trying to figure out a way to ask this question without it sounding uh, adversarial, but you, you've said several times, you have to be the leader. When you go into the herd of whatever size, you have to be the leader. And so my question to you is why, why do I have to be the leader? Because if we're not the leader, then the horse oftentimes, number one, how are you going to get what you want mm. if you're not the leader? How are you going to get the horse to leave its grass and let you put a halter on it? How are you going to get the horse to let you put a saddle on it? How are you going to let the horse let you take it for an enjoyable trail ride? Yeah. It's not an enjoyable trail ride for the horse, but nonetheless, <laughs> you know, how are we going to get those things that we want if we're not the leader? Yeah. You know, you're not going to pay the horse to do it. They're not a, they're not a paid employee and you're not going to crack a whip and make the horse do it because they're not a slave. So how are you going to get them to do the things you want to do if you're not the leader? Because otherwise, why would he just keep doing what he's doing? Yeah. I, why and would, that makes, that makes total sense. And that's kind of what I thought you were getting at, that merely by virtue of trying to get the horse to do something you want it to do, you are leading or you are trying to lead and you in order to be an effective leader, you've got to 
to do it in the right way. And I think that's all the things you've right. been talking about so far in this episode. Absolutely. The thing I really want to emphasize to people is in the, at this level anyway, I want people to really think about just the herd for what it is and that there's safety in numbers. And I also don't want people to, and I don't ever want to make this sound cruel and cold and, and, and callous, but the reality is horses and, and herd animals in general just don't have the same type of love dynamics and everything that we do. And it's not good or bad. It just is. It, you know, because we humans, like I mentioned earlier, we humans have this huge capacity of love and we have this huge capacity of sharing our love for others. But we also have this huge capacity of self, very selfish love. The animals are totally different than we are in that regard. But yet sometimes our perception of their herd behavior is that they do love each other because you do see the mothers over there bonding with their babies and they're bonding with their babies in ways that look affectionate. Sometimes it looks like they're rubbing on them. Sometimes it looks like they're licking on them and you see the babies coming over there and rubbing and doing things on their moms. So from our perception, because we we tend to look at that as affection, sometimes and I'm not saying it's not affection amongst the horses, but sometimes it's just that they're uh, sadly using each other. Like, hey, mom, I got this thing in my eye and I can't reach it with my hoof. Can <laughs> I rub that on your belly and kind of until I get it off? And moms are used to that. You know, moms, you're used to kids doing that to us. But at the same time, that kind of goes on there. But our perception, because we want to be loved like we understand it, then we view that as such. But then at the same time, you let a predator come about. And you are really going to see that dynamic of instinct of herd protection and also herd selection really kick in. Hmm. For example, let's just a wolf comes into a herd of horses or, or a pack of wolves comes into a herd of horses. The first thing the mother will do is try to find out real quick, where's my baby? And she's going to run to the baby, even if it means hoard the wolves to get to the baby. So it looks, oh, looky there, she loves her baby so much that she's going to go try to protect it against the wolves. That might be part of it, but it also might be she's going to run toward the baby, even if it means going toward the wolves, to get to her baby, to hopefully get the baby's attention. So, Come on, baby, run with me. But why? Is it because she really loves it so much? And it might be, but the other side of that coin might be it is that, you know what, I need you to survive because you're carrying these genetics. Yeah. You're carrying on the life of the species of the entire herd. You see, so they're doing it oftentimes for different motives than what we think. And why do I say all of that is to say this, that mother will oftentimes, if we truly understand the way animals think, and especially the way herd animals think, they have what we refer to, and this has been said a billion times, but we've heard, we have what they, they have what we refer to as that fight or flight syndrome. They fight or flight. So their very first instinct is get the heck out of Dodge. And if I can't get away and I'm going to try to survive by fighting off the predators, so let's just say that that mother and its baby couldn't quite catch up with the rest of the herd. And obviously the wolves are going to try to take down the lesser of those two. So let's just say the baby weighs 200 pounds and the mama weighs a thousand pounds. Which one do you think the herd or which one do you think the wolves are going to try to take down? The you know, baby, in our minds, we're thinking, hey, you can yeah. go get a buffet by getting the big one. But you see, they've got to look at things from their perspective too. They want to get the greatest reward for the least amount of effort. I think the baby is going to be the least amount of effort for them. Mm -hmm. So they're going to try to take that one down. But if this mother is really committed to the gen her genetics carrying on, the survival of those genetics for the species, then now she's going to try to 
fight those babies or those things off her baby. And again, we might view that as, looky there, she loves her baby so much, she's going to sacrifice her own safety to fight for that baby. But it's the instinct. And to a certain degree, they are. Yeah, but it's that instinct. It's not, I don't, well, we don't know because they can't talk to us and tell us, but it's that instinct, that survival instinct, the uh, preservation of the species that, that yes. it just kicks in at that point. Yes. Right. Why are they working so hard to save the baby? Yes, they want to pass on those genetics, but couldn't somebody say, well, screw the baby. Why can't the Meredith pass on the genetics by saving herself? And they do. But how old is the mare versus how old is the baby? Right. So if you look at the average horse in the wild, she can carry on the genetic longer by that younger baby surviving than she can hers. She's only going to have a certain amount of time left on this earth, and, and horses or prey animals just know that. So they need that baby to come on for the next generation, so to speak. And somebody might argue, oh, but why can't she just go get pregnant and do that again? She may not survive the winter. She has no idea what's coming around the, the corner. They can't think about the future. They're only thinking about right now. You mm -hmm. see, as far as they get about about the future is the genetic aspect and the survival of the species. But they don't really think too long about the future from the way that we think about it. But here's the crazy part. The, so the mayor is fighting like crazy to save the baby from the wolves. And it might just get to the point where it's a hopeless cause, you know. Five or six wolves or however how many, they finally get the baby and the mom's got to leave. And the, the mother goes away and she's probably very distraught thinking, man, I've failed. I'm not going to be able to pass on my genetics to the herd, which really has a, a very large effect, a lot larger than people think. It's also the mixture of the genetics. It's because what happens if, is if only one mare and one stallion's babies continue to survive and all the others fail, then as a result, the herd itself will eventually fail because you're going to have that inbreeding aspect. So the, the more numbers that you have, the greater likelihood that that survival is going to take place. And I know that's getting way out there. But let's get now to the, uh, to the survival of just that mare and the baby and what people might see. But the mare finally gets to the point to where she can't protect that baby. So what does she do? She finally just leaves and she goes and protects herself. And people think, well, okay, that's just Mother Nature at its best, and that's how it works. And then some might argue, wow, she she doesn't love the baby as much as we thought she did because she didn't fight to the death to save it. And that's what people see, and that's part of what I want people to recognize, too, is that when it gets down to it, that mare is going to save herself. Mm -hmm. But, man, every once in a while, you're going to see something that's really off to the other side. You're going to see a huge exception to that. I, I mentioned earlier, sometimes we have to, if we don't have that luxury of watching horses in their own environment, maybe we could subject ourselves to watching documentaries of other sorts, of other herds. Laura, there's, there's an incidence that I've watched this video a hundred times because it, it kind of blows my mind thought toward the typical herd dynamic. What it was is it was a, a, bur a herd of water buffaloes, obviously in Africa, and they're all doing their water buffalo thing. And before you know it, there's a big pride of lions that's getting together, and they're obviously pursuing and looking for the weaker of the herd of water buffalo. As they're approaching, they finally spot a young water buffalo calf, and they start gradually spreading out and making their way toward that young buffalo calf. And then the rest of the herd, not noticing the lions at this stage, are gradually getting a little bit further away from where the buffalo calf is until eventually. 
the buffalo calf is separated far enough that the lions make their move. So they just go and they attack and they get to the calf. And when they get to the calf, of course, the calf does all the things to fight for its life. It tries running. It could not run them. It gets caught. Now it's screaming out. It's it's bellering like a calf will do. And I'm not going to try to imitate a calf beller, but <laughs> it's bellering out trying to <laughs> it's bellering out trying to call, you know, for help. And the mother, believe it or not, actually starts coming back. But there's like six or eight lions. And the mother trying to fight away six or eight lions seems like a helpless cause, but she's going for it, man. She's running in there and she's hooking a lion and trying to throw a lion off her baby. And this just going nuts. I mean, this is really a battle going on about six or eight lions fighting this baby and its mother. And then finally, the mother just gives up. She just can't do it. So she goes back to the herd. Meanwhile, the herd hearing all the commotion, they stop from their departure. They stop and they start coming back. And you can almost see the expressions that they almost look more curious than anything. So they gradually start walking back very slowly to where the calf is. And the calf is really getting torn apart by now. I mean, it's still bellowing. It's still struggling. It's still trying to survive. The lions are kind of taking turns, you know, it, it jumping on its back, biting its legs, doing everything they can to disable the calf. But they can't quite get it to the point where they can kill it yet. Meanwhile, the herd just keeps getting closer and closer. And then the absolute most amazing thing I've ever seen, and this is the part that made that situation so incredibly unique, was that before you know it, the entire herd ran toward the baby. The entire herd ran toward the lions, and they started attacking the lions. Before you know it, the lions were now at a huge minority. There's only to them, and there's this herd, big herd of water buffaloes, probably well over 50 or so animals. And they dominate the situation to the point where the lions, in their very confused state, begin just to move away and abandon the near-killed baby. And then all those buffaloes almost surrounded that baby and made sure that the mother could kind of nurse the baby back up to get it to, to walk away with the herd. And then, of course, the documentary stopped and went to something different. I was absolutely blown away because I've seen that same scenario before to where, yes, the mother may fight for a while and she'll eventually give up. And now the predators have the, the prey and they just do their thing and they eat it and consume it. And the herd goes on and survives with one number less. But in this case, the entire herd did something that was totally against the norm instinct. And the only reason I tell the story is because as soon as I tell people that Oh, well, the herd's instinct is to flee and get the heck out of Dodge, and then the baby becomes the sacrificial lamb. That's the one that had to die so the others could survive. That would be the norm. But why I say that is that every once in a while, Mother Nature, as well as our other parts of our life, will throw us a spatter in the works for us, and it'll be an exception. There really, I truly believe nowadays there is always an exception to every rule. That's why I really appreciate the advice that was given to me by one of my mentors one time when I kept bugging him about certain things that he was trying to teach me as a horseman. And he finally looked at me and says, well, Van, the only absolute is that there are no absolutes. So there's always that situation that comes in there that's a little bit different, but we also have to understand that is the exception. So as the rule, we need to follow the normal rules, if you will, if we want to emulate the most likely instinct of the animal in which we hope to work with, in this case, obviously the horse. Hmm. So the burden's on us really to be a student of the horse. 
the more you know about it, the more you know about its instincts, the more you can accept that for what it is, then really the more you're arming yourself with all the tools that you need to be a greater communicator. The better communicator you are, the more likely you are of being able to win over, if you will, the leadership of that herd, even if it's just you and that one other horse. And oftentimes you can do it without being the bad guy. You can do it just by being a respectable, leadership-worthy leader, and the horse is quite happy to hand over that leadership role as long as you're committed to both the horse, yourself, and the herd, in this case, you and your horse. Fascinating. A lot of things to think about. I, I guess, to me, one of the big takeaways from what you've said here is just understand horses. Understand your specific horse, but understand horses for what they are. And and you, you get that by watching them and, and learning from them. So we're always as much a student as we are a, a trainer, a leader, or whatever else. Um, I mean, I think that the best leaders are perpetual students anyway. Oh, absolutely. I, I think so. And and I've just, I, over the years as a horseman, I've seen that and I've admired that the most from my, my mentors in particular. And I've been very, very fortunate. My mentors have all been guys that have lived a long time. <laughs> you know, Tom Dorrance was well into his 90s when he passed away. and But I was a, a frequent caller to him. I would call him and ask him certain things. Every chance I got to go uh, watch him do a clinic or whatever the case may be, went there. And I was very, very fortunate he was able to live as long as he did. One of my day, Mr. Jack Brainerd, well, again, up into his 90s, still doing clinics. He's still doing presentations. I, really, I had no excuse for not calling him up and, and being in contact more. In fact, I need to really make myself do that because because he's in his 90s. I just the, the reality is he's not going to be around forever, and he does have that gift of knowledge that the rest of us seek. But we are the best leaders, regardless of what role we're in, whether it be in the business world, in the home life, in the I guess what we refer to oftentimes as the humanship aspect. The best leaders are, like you said, they're perpetual students. Yeah. Oftentimes, that student is very keenly aware of how they're being viewed. And how they're being, how they are being observed by others, and that's why I think it's so important for us to work with the horses because by us looking and studying them, and the more we learn about them, the more we can also change their view of us in their eyes. Hmm. How do they view us? Do they view us like we talked earlier? Do they view us as the slave driver? Do they they view us as uh, the dictator? Do they? Do they view us as the employee and this works for me? Or do they view us as a worthy leader within that one or two man herd situation with them? So to me, it's it's very much worth it for us to spend that time with them. And 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 bottom line is this though, Laura, to me, and I'm gonna to refer to one of my notes here, but bottom line is this just know and respect those in our lives for who they really are. You see, not that twisted little vision that we may have of them or those assumptions that we have of them or whatever else, but who they really are. When we know that and then we can and we will accept our role for what, what that role really is, and we can, we can earn that role of respect with them as their leader, then suddenly that makes the working relationship with our horse that much better. Yeah, You have to look at them for what they are, Accept the fact that if we're going to be in that environment with that horse, that we must be the leader and we must have to, we, and we must be committed to earn 
that respect and earn that role. We can't just go there and demand it. We've got to earn it. And when we do that, then suddenly that dynamic, the dynamic of the herd relationship between you and your horse, it's very clear cut. The horse is more than willing to accept that in most cases. And as a result, now suddenly your life with your horse gets incredibly more enjoyable and incredibly rewarding. There's probably nothing better like it than to have that, that working relationship with your horse, like the Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers of the world. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Again, another, another episode where you've given a lot of food for thought, a lot of things to think about in terms of our, certainly our relationships with our horses, but also even in our relationships with people. For those who are listening, who, who maybe maybe something Van has said has raised some questions that we haven't gotten into, that uh, we haven't answered yet, I know he loves to hear your questions. So if you want to ask those questions, you can do them by posting in the Van Hargis Horsemanship Facebook page if you are on Facebook, or you can email your questions or your comments about this episode or your suggestions for other things Van could talk about. Email those to info at vanhargis.com. He looks forward to hearing from you and hopefully making this show more and more useful and and very practical for you. If you've enjoyed this episode, if you enjoy any of the episodes, I guess I'd put out a plea that you help spread the word about Ride Every Stride. Tell your friends who enjoy horses or even might not think about horses, but maybe would enjoy the humanship aspects of the things Van talks about. Let them know about the podcast, show them how to subscribe and, uh, and help grow the community that's being a part of this, this discussion about learning to ride every stride, both on our horses and in, in life in general. Van, anything else, anything coming up you wanted to talk about? No, I just encourage people that if, uh, if you're living in a part of the world where it's really cold and bitter this winter, come down to South Texas and visit with us, get a, escape the cold and and uh, we can have fun together. We've got uh, uh, facilities on site now that people can can stay at here on the ranch. However, if you'd like to get a little bit more of a different type of environment, Victoria literally is only a few miles away, and there's tons and tons of hotels, restaurants, and things to do there as well. But we'd really like to encourage people to come and visit us on the ranch, Laura, and stay at the uh, at the facilities we have available for them there. You can either bring your horses or you can ride ours. Either way, we're guests from afar. Come and visit with us and spend some time and just have fun learning about, about horses. And if nothing else, just sit around the fire and, and, uh, and just visit. We, we really encourage people to come and do that. And Laura, I also want to say too, and like we said in previous episodes, there's over the years, I've just realized there's no way that I could do what I do if it wasn't for the help and assistance of others. Uh, again, you've always been a great encourager of, of, of what I do and and what I do and, and how I do it too, to a certain degree. And I really appreciate that. But there's also other companies out there. And I really want to give a shout out to these other companies that really help me do what I do. Arena Works, for example, is a, is a company we've worked with for years and years uh, that uh, has helped us always keep our arenas looking good, keep it safe for our horses, for the footing and that sort of thing. They do a great job in the design and implementation of their equipment. And I really appreciate that. They really make it easy for me to do what I need to do. Um, the other thing is that in order to stay better organized, both in my trailer as well as in our tack room, if it wasn't for a company called Equirax, we, weren't be, we wouldn't be able to have our tack room organized the way that we do, And which, like we've said on previous episodes, I use my tack room not only for the preservation of my equipment, but also I use my tack room as a teaching tool uh, to help students uh, learn about, about my equipment and why we do certain things with it and where it's stored and that sort of thing. 
And last but not least, of course, is an organization of which we're very proud to be working with of late. Uh, I've been asked to work with them to help design some horse-friendly type of equipment, everything from stalls to feed racks to waterers to mineral feeders, you name it. If it has to do with taking care of your horses, Ranger Gate is helping me design these things. And the, I guess you could say the big announcement is with those guys, we're going to be co-branding with them, which means that if it has their workmanship and their materials with it, but my logo, you can be assured that it's going to be top quality and very, very well thought out, very well designed equine products. And to find about any of these things, uh, to learn more about them, of course, I can just go and visit our website, which is, of course, vanhargis.com. So I really encourage people to go visit that. Laura, if folks would like to learn more about our clinics and seminars, or if you would like to invite us to come and be a speaker at your equine event, or if you'd like for us to come and speak to your Lions Club or, or whatever the case may be, I'm always willing to go and help out those organizations and, and be a public speaker. And of course, we're always willing to go to the expos and do clinics. So if you're interested in having us come to your, your area, simply just reach out to us at info at Tell us which, uh, what's on your agenda, and we'll do everything in our power to see if we can't help that uh, event be a big success for you. And Laura, with that said, I'd like to just say again, thank you dearly for all that you do to help make the, our podcast possible. And I know from the input from all the viewers, they absolutely love the questions and the interaction that you give because they see them they say themselves in your place. So you're, you do a wonderful job of ans- asking the questions that I know our listeners would like to have answered. I really appreciate you doing that because you make the podcast a big success by doing so. So until the next time, I'd like to say to everybody, don't forget that it's your trail, it's your life, it's your journey. So ride every stride.